Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown, here today with my co-host, Kizzy Joseph. Kizzy and I will be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Reg Flowers is an artist, activist, and educator whose work is rooted in ancient shamanic African trickster and Brazilian Joker traditions. They use theater of the oppressed, art of hosting, Navajo peacemaking, and other anti-oppression techniques as the foundation of their theater making, mediation, problem solving, and group healing practices. Reg began their career as a theater artist on and off Broadway. They are the founder of the award-winning Falcon Works Theater Company and Red Hook Brooklyn, which uses popular theater to build capacities for civic engagement and social change. Reg, who also blogs as Notorious Pink, now has a home in Detroit and works with the Allied Media Project. They still have their Brooklyn roots, but has found a space where their work in theater and as an artist, activist, educator, and shaman can flourish. What were your thoughts, Kizzy? As I listen to Reg, one word that comes to mind is magic. Reg's recounting of their experience from childhood to present day really captures what it means to be deeply connected to flow and intuition. Reg has always embraced play and imagination as a form of magic, gathering their school peers to put on a play in elementary school, producing their own plays on the big stage as an adult. Magic for Reg is also about connecting with the ancestors and embarking on their healing journey. Reg, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm feeling wonderful, which is, feels like a miracle considering everything that's going on in the world. But uh, I feel wonderfully blessed and kind of floating above the reality that I know I'm in Mm -hmm. at the the Mm -hmm. present time. Wow. That is true. That is so true. Um, So today, which state are you in? Michigan? I'm in uh, Michigan. I'm in Detroit, Detroit, Michigan, Mm -hmm. and I've been here since really just about a week before the lockdown. I came to celebrate my birthday in March um, just because I feel like my spiritual home is here. And so Uh I wanted to to transition into the next year of my life here. And um, it hasn't quite ended um, because pretty much everything went virtual. So all the work that I would have been doing in New York City 
what's happening um, via you know various platforms online. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now I know that you are you work with the Allied Media Group, and I know so many people like from the beginning. I know Jenny Lee. I know Invincible. Uh, Adrian Marie Brown, so many people who are involved in that. How did you get involved with AMC? Well, first of all, you named some of my favorite people who <laughs> I I met, um, for example, Invincible, a lot of folks I, I met through the Boggs Center, the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center. Mm-hmm. And I discovered the Boggs Center... I was I was actually doing work in Brooklyn. I was on the board of a not-for-profit community farm. And the director of that organization thought it would be great for me to get more grounded in the world of social justice. Um I was this was I want to say almost 15 years ago. My goodness, it was it was quite a while ago. Mm-hmm. But I I had been doing an anti-oppression practice, but I didn't really consider myself part of the social justice movement. It just hadn't mm. occurred to me. I was a you know I was a theater artist, and so I went to Grand Rapids, Michigan, for a conference related to the solidarity economy and Grace Lee Boggs was the keynote speaker mm. and after that 11 minute speech I pretty much knew that I was going to connect to whatever work was happening in the place that she was talking about in that speech and so that, that, uh-huh. mm-hmm. yeah that's amazing because before all of those people that I mentioned, I was involved with the bo- before the Box Center with Detroit Summer. I knew Jimmy. I met Jimmy. I think the last two years before he passed, and then Grace. You know, Grace is a force in and of herself. And what so many of the people who are doing things in this area came through through hearing Grace talk or working with the the Box Center. Yeah. So, and it, and it sometimes you don't recognize that you're engaged in social justice, but you are. Yeah. You yeah. just need to to grow it. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that was beautiful. Um, I would say three months later, I was on my way to purchasing a house here. Another thing about Detroit is that, and I've discovered this even more since I started doing some ancestry work. Is a lot of my family was was based here. There's a mm. whole branch of my family on my father's side, the Maddoxes, that um, migrated from Georgia, from Sanders Sandersville, Georgia, to Detroit. Wow. And my my grandmother was one of the few family members to migrate to Philadelphia. So that was a little bit of a, there was a little bit of a homecoming sense about coming to Detroit because I always knew that I had roots here, uh, including my, um, my great grandfather. So, um, who was Mitchell Maddox. 
So coming to Detroit felt like, it really felt like coming home. And, and so, and it's so interesting because I've, you know, I, I'm, I've migrated to Brooklyn from Philadelphia because we had, like I said, there, were the, there was that branch of the family in Philadelphia. But when I came to Detroit, I really felt like this was going to be my artistic and spiritual home. So very quickly getting involved with the um, James and Grace Lee Boggs Center, working on a few conferences and other uh, gatherings with the Boggs Center, being asked to present at some of those gatherings and getting to meet a lot of folks hands-on and then setting up um, the project, the first project of mine that was sponsored by the Allied Media Projects called Alt Space Detroit, which is really, uh, it's a practice space in community building and sustainability that's hosted uh, since it kicked off in about 2014, has hosted guests to attend conferences here. It has hosted a, you know, credited college course for two weeks for the past, you know, four years. It didn't happen this year because of COVID. So it's really uh -huh. um, uh, taken off in a, re in, a, in a quite beautiful way. And one of those ways that lets me know that this is, must be, this must be happening in the flow. Because when things happen in the uh -huh. flow, they feel like they're happening by themselves. And then it was only after discovering the Speakers Bureau that I realized I needed to, I needed some representation as I was transitioning away from simply working in academia and working as a theater artist, but really trying to bring the particular set of skills that I had to the public in a general, in a more general way. I needed uh, some way to be represented um, for that work, and, the, and I approached the Allied Speakers Bureau, and I thought, oh, they're not going to take me. They have Adrian Marie Brown. They have all these other. Uh -huh. People to want a petty honeycomb, and so um, they have all these fantastic people. They're not going to want me, and of course they showed up at the table and they were saying, "You really want to be in? You really want to be with us? You want to be represented by us?" And so it was clear that there was mutual um, admiration, and so mm -hmm. that's how that's how that eventually eventually happened through association with so many people who were part of that work already, and then finally getting up the the gall, I thought, to approach them and having that work out so beautifully. Mm. That's beautiful to have that sense of community support and, you know, having all of that within your spiritual home. Um, what drew you to theater and acting as a, both a passion and profession? Okay, here's here's where the here's where the the first magic <laughs> comes in. Here's where the first little bits of magic come in. So, um, I never, I I don't remember ever not being able to write. I don't remember ever not being able to draw. And I'm not saying like you know, you think of like children's drawings and the way that children might scribble a few things. I was I I I always had worked for as long as I can remember I've always been able to capture my thoughts on paper exactly as I saw them and um, I've recognized for a long time that that was a gift because I see people trying to teach their children how to read and teach their children how to write and it's just not happening at you know two and three like it happened for me 
And another thing that started almost pre-language for me is I could organize um, the kids on the block into a kind of make-believe play that I didn't recognize was, you know, community organizing, and I didn't also didn't recognize it as theater direction. I would just want to I would want to play whatever movie I had seen on TV, and I would want to play that with the kids, and so I would feed them their lines. And I had a really uncanny memory for um, for uh, dial for for movie dialogue. I would feed them their lines, and they would just go right along with it. Mm-hmm. And we would play these adventure games, and I would always cast myself as Susie, the girl who was being saved. And um, you know, all these brutish boys on my block would play these games with me. Um, it was as if they were under some kind of spell, and. Um, I wrote my first play when I was eight um, in the third grade, and I Mm -hmm. took it to the teacher, and I said, I I would like to produce this play. Well, I don't think I used the word produced because I didn't know what that meant, but I wanted to do the Mm -hmm. play, and so I got some friends to do it, and they said yes. They didn't realize that they'd had to be rehearsed. They had to memorize lines. They didn't understand those things, but I did. It was just I intuited those things at eight years old, and they, you know, they mutinied. They wanted to go out and play, and I cried, and the teacher went out and got them and brought them back in, and we did this play. Um, it was, um, you know, it was my own version of, of, of Alice in Wonderland that was a kind of a Thanksgiving play, um, and... Uh, so you asked that question, and I, did, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what, what moved me to do those things because I didn't understand it even as a profession or as an, even a vocation. It was just something I was always able to do. What led you to start um, your, your Falcon Works Theater? And... When you went in, did you have in mind the civic engagement and social change aspect of it, or was this just like carrying on what you had done clearly since you'd been a child, this writing and producing theatrical events? Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, for me, that was always just play, right? So it didn't feel uh-huh. like, it didn't feel like, you know, engagement. It didn't feel like anything special. It was just, I was just playing. I was just doing what I do. Um, and people went along with it. And, and I don't think, I think that we were all kind of ignorant. So nobody knew that it was special that there would be this one kid on the block who would want to do all these things. They, would, they just, because, you know, I was around for about as long as they could remember. So it was just something that was. And, um, I think I always thought I was just going to, you know, I thought I was going to be an actor. You know, as I began to understand what theater was, I had that very, you know, ignorant, limited idea of what it meant to be in the theater. And that was what I saw in front of the camera. I didn't realize that there was a whole, you know, a whole community of artists and collaborators and administrative folks who helped to make theater a possibility and so, you know, I always thought I was, I was supposed to, and I was terribly shy, too painfully. I didn't want to be, 
I didn't want to be on stage in front of people. I was, you know, I was, uh, um, I could barely speak. And so um, somehow I made this transition over several years from this fear of being in front of people to, you know, to getting leads in musicals and community theaters and um, eventually getting into a conservatory program a conservatory program in Philadelphia. I went to University of the Arts before it was University of the Arts when it was still Philadelphia College for the Performing Arts. And, um, and then, you know, again, through ignorance, because I didn't realize that not just anybody can go to Yale School of Drama. I went to Yale School of Drama just because I, you know, I was like, okay, let me mm-hmm. just do that next because that's what you, I guess that's what you do next. And people would say, don't, don't you know that only, you know, this percentage of people get in? I didn't know any of that. And so I got in. So I managed, you know, just managed. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it was like this magical being in the flow, um, following my joy and just being deaf to no. I didn't hear no. And uh, that's a spirit that I think I carry with me and try to bring into spaces, this, this, um, this spirit of possibility. Starting my own theater company um, was just as kind of as random as everything else. I, I um, was doing a play. You know, I, I graduated from Yale, and it was not difficult to get roles. I was one of a you know, very few people who had gone through that very prestigious program. And so, you know, I was the new, I was the new flavor candy on the, on the, <laughs> on the shelf. And so I was getting cast in things and I got to work with an amazing actress, Michelle Shea. And while we were working together, she just turned to me. I don't know what, tr- what, what led her to say it, but she said, you know, you can just produce a play. You know that, right? And it had never occurred to me since, you know, childhood that that was a thing to do. I was following that path that now I'm a piece of meat. I'm an actor. I'm there at the disposal, you know, at the leisure of the, you know, royalty of the industry who are the directors and producers. But the idea that I could produce my own work was, was um, it was being reintroduced to me by, um, by an, an act, another actor sitting at the makeup table. You know, she's getting her hair done, and I was getting, you know, my fade touched up from whatever the play was that we were doing. And so um, I went back to New York City. I think we were working in Denver. I went back to New York City, and I, I did it. I, I called up some people, and I said, hey, I want to produce a play. Can you give me some money? And... <laughs> And they said yes, and um, I got. I actually had um, Ben Mort- Mordecai, who at that point had been producing all of August Wilson's shows on Broadway, um, uh, came forward to be um, to lend his services at the general at general manager. So um, it was produced by this very prestigious producer. Again, like how how was this happening? If any, if 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 somebody had. Um, if I told anyone that I was going to go ask Ben Mordecai to produce my, my one, and this was a one person show, they probably would have laughed in my face, but you know, I ended up doing it. And once I got that taste of producing my, what I can be the producer. It was, you, it was over. (laughs) It was over because I was, I was going to, I was, I was, it was nonstop. And that was really the energy that grew Falcon Works Theater Company. It was that something needed to hold 
all of this work, I started producing at least one production a year, which in New York City is an undertaking. Mm-hmm. Even even a, even a, even on small scale, even a showcase is quite an undertaking. Finding a space, affording a space. Um, it was much easier in the in the '90s to do this, but still, it was quite an undertaking. And so I did that for several years, and then decided it was time to to um, uh, I produced a very very large scale um, piece in Brooklyn at a place called the Brooklyn Lyceum, which is now a gym. And uh, after that happened, it was just very clear that we needed that I needed a, an organization to hold this this work that we were doing. And um, uh, you know, uh, got the um, incorporated as a not for profit. And then then there was a theater company, and the theater company has been in operation for almost twenty years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you tell us more about that first play and just in general themes that, you know, you explore yeah. in your plays? Yeah, because that's a whole other place. And I'm glad that you've asked I'm glad you've asked that question. <laughs> because how the how the pieces became politicized and how the company came to life were almost concurrent tracks and much easier to talk to go, it's, a much, it's much easier to go back in time. So that first piece, you know, one of the things was I, wanted, I was tired of not seeing stories about, like, people that I knew and stories that were meaningful mm. to me. And so um, the first piece, uh, you know, I was like, what, what am I going to write about? And I saw a piece that was written on um, a famous uh, drag performer, Dorian Corey, who was featured in the film Paris is Burning. Mm-hmm. as just a, a wise sage character. In fact, the last line of the film is spoken by this person. But Dorian Corey, um, after, after their death, um, while they were going through their... They were a very well-known um, seamstress, costume maker. Um, they made costumes for you know very wealthy patrons. And so people were very eager to go through... Dorian's closets and while going through their closets they found a mummified corpse Mm. and I thought there's a story and of course people wanted to know you know hear about you know people wanted to know what had happened and they were able to piece together a few details but not very many and I thought wouldn't it be interesting to hear that story from the perspective of the person who ended up in that bag and so um, the, that was how I conceived the, the show Out of the Bag, which was about this, mm-hmm. this character coming back from the grave and telling the story of how they, how they, ended, up, um, how they ended up a mummy. And um, after the, the next piece I, I did was actually a, written in blank verse, and the reason I took this, that piece on was I'd heard there were these debates happening. There was a kind of like an, a, a, an infamous debate between August Wilson and Robert Brustein. 
And Robert Brewstein is a sort of like a you know an icon of the the American theater, and as is August Wilson. But the debate was that Brewstein asserted that um, African American themes were not universal to be absorbed into the classical canon. And I was like, I'll show you. <laughs> so I wrote, um, uh-huh. I wrote basically it was like your typical sort of like mama on the couch play, but I said it in this classical context. And it was, you know, it was Greek, it was Greek tragedy. It was Greek tragedy. Um, so it was, you know, it was a play about a mother who was having a, an, a um, who was going through a psychotic break and her relationship to her her um her children who she you know had had basically sent to war against each other which is very typical of of classical drama you know that's like every greek play every shakespeare play is like you know the es- the family espionage but that's also the the subject of a lot of you know the you know family dramas including the family dramas that are uh, themed around the the experiences of African Americans. And so um, my goal as a producer was to bring stories to light that would kind of uncover these, would um, would dispel the mythology around black life. Mm. And so that was one of the first that was the the first way the work became politicized and then i discovered theater of the oppressed oh uh, mhm and yeah, yeah that well, you was, know i want to i want to ask you a question then i want to take the break and come back to theater of the oppressed one of the things you said which you know made me think because we had all we've talked to a couple people who were artists and stuff, and it, and like how you said, you went to Yale, you got that you were the flavor of a month. They had put you on this projectile. How you know if someone hadn't said to you, you know, you could produce. Would you do you feel that you would have been like put into that mill of just like being the flavor of the month, and then the next one would come? And does that happen to a lot of artists, actors, and things to where the broadness of the possibilities that maybe isn't, ex- isn't offered to them or told to them while they're in academia, when you were at Yale and you were studying all that, you know, they say, oh, well, you're going to be an actor, and this is what you do. Huh. I mean... The short answer is, if I had stayed on that trajectory, I'd probably be, you know, no one can say, but I'd probably be dead. Um, Mm. Knowing the sort of the level of compulsion and the um, psychological um, issues underlying all of all of this, while all of this was going on, um, I don't see how um, I... I ever would have dealt with it because one of the things that um, was true of my life as an actor was I was indulged in all of my compulsive behaviors. Mm. So, yeah, 
I'll, I'll say that simply. I hope that that can serve as an, an, an answer, and then we can come back because I think the the salvation there was um, started with in my introduction to theater of the oppressed. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, that's where we'll pick up. <laughs> okay, we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. We're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Today, Kizzy and I are talking to Reg Flowers, and we left off talking about the theater of the oppressed. And, you know, and in reading information about you, Reg, a lot of it, that introduction, you use theater of the oppressed and the art of hosting and, and peacemaking as part of anti-oppression techniques. So, Tell us how you got into Theater of the Oppressed, and for those who aren't familiar with it, give us an understanding of it. Mm-hmm. Um, theater of the Oppressed, it's a, it's, a, it's a theater framework. It's a theater methodology. Um, like people may have heard of Stanislavski, or they might have heard of Meisner, and they might have heard of any of the other techniques that actors use to learn to perform or methods that actors uh, or to learn how to act and theater of the oppressed is very much very similar to those except it was designed to uh, to bring actors and non-actors onto the stage to really create a way for people who didn't have any other type of artistic creative language to be able to um, practice and communicate their own stories on the stage. So it's the theater of the oppressed. So it's people who have been marginalized, whose voices have been stolen in one way or another, and it's creating a way for them to steal their voices, you know, take their voices back, reclaim their voices using the medium of the theater. And um, another great component of the theater of the oppressed is that it's not hierarchical. The typical theater, you know, the, the Aristotelian theater, puts the, the, um, the, the actor on the stage as the, as the, you know, person in charge, as the expert on emotions of the, ex- the human experience, and the audience is, you know, sits quietly, you know, don't cough, don't unwrap uh-huh. your you'll be quiet, you know, maybe laugh every now and then if I tell a joke and I hold for your laugh. But um, the theater of the oppressed engages the audience and tries, uh, uses 
many techniques to get the audience out of their seat and up onto the stage. And uh, I was, when I was first introduced to it, I thought, this is ridiculous. Who, what, what? Get the, the act, get people, regular people onto the stage. Don't you know I have a degree from Yale? How much time I spent being prepared <laughs> here and show you how to do it right, you know, how to live your life and be a human being um, in the right way. And um, it was quite by accident uh, that I was working. I'd stopped acting professionally. And I think that was really, um, that was really the ancestors um, coming to my rescue. Because I had just done a show on Broadway and there was no, no, you know, I was, I'd started getting a little bit of television work. I was getting leads. And so um, the fact that I stopped doing that work because I wanted to, you know, I had started working with youth in New York City. And that work was just so rewarding that I wanted to take a break to really pursue bringing theater to uh, these young people um, from, you know, who were, were quote, underprivileged, unquote, um, although full of life and ideas and having a voice. And I discovered Theater of the Oppressed as a way of working with those young people because I was always troubled by the literacy aspect of the theater. Mm. And that, you, you know, if they weren't comfortable writing or they weren't comfortable reading... How do you engage? And because theater of the oppressed is image-based, we make pictures with our bodies, it made it much more accessible, especially teaching Shakespeare. Because that was one of the things that I was enlisted to do with these young people, was to teach them Shakespeare. And so I discovered theater of the oppressed, found how, discovered how effective it was in just you know getting these kids from you know, from, you know, a lot of them were living in projects and a lot of them were living in, you know, low-income neighborhoods to get them excited about doing, doing, uh, working with this very complicated language because they were able to very quickly turn it into images that, um, that resonated with them. And so I started learning theater of the oppressed just to have that in my bag of tricks to be able to work with, with, um, with the young people. And being anti-oppression work, it very quickly turned me on to the oppressions that were happening in my own life. So I became the subject of the work. I thought I was doing it for them. And it turned out that I had been living with, um, living in a, in, within the context of a, of a lot of oppression. And uh, it exposed itself very, very quickly, and I found myself at odds with a lot of my colleagues who didn't want to hear about the injustices. <laughs> you know, they didn't want to hear about, they just wanted to, you know, they wanted me to make funny plays with kids. Mm-hmm. And so um, w- between uh, discovering, from the time I discovered Theater of the Oppressed, to going through a major life transition was maybe six months. Was maybe six months. But um, there was no turning back after that. I'd been politicized, fully politicized. Mm-hmm. 
you know, reading pa Paulo mm -hmm. Freire, um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and really coming to understand what it means to be a, an oppressed subject, especially in the United States at this particular moment in history, and um, also to, to be living with internalized oppression and recognizing the ways that I've oppressed myself um, for the for the oppressor, right? I've 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 done the work mm -hmm. to myself. So that was that was really how the that was really the major transition and the major awakening, the first major awakening um, that led to my politicization. Politicization. You know, as I think about that, you know, I had talked with and. Eric Darnell Pritchard, who's a, a professor, and he and I had a conversation about literacy. And as you were saying that, I thought about that conversation, how there's this yin-yang to literacy, like everyone talks about literacy, but then how they want to put us in a box, like what you were saying, how you're supposed to get up on stage and do this, that, and the other, to where if we don't perform in these quote-unquote ways that we're not seen as being literate or what we down doesn't have that level of literacy that society is looking for, which also, like you were saying, it makes you be part of, if you continue to perform in that way, you are also oppressing others who have this other voice. Mm -hmm. And I liked how you were saying that, you know, it had to do with bodies, it had to do with that. So it's really like, in using theater to break that mold, to say that, no, even using Shakespeare, it's not doing like uh, traditional Shakespeare, traditional theater, that place where you're waiting for someone quiet, all right, everyone clap now, everyone laugh now. It's, it's bigger. Mm -hmm. Did you see that as you got more in, engaged in the theater of a press that you were giving voice to many who had often been made voiceless absolutely i mean one of the first thing that one of the first things i discovered i was working with um i was working with a young person in um i was working in red hook and this was through falcon works and we were working with a very withdrawn i would have said autistic young person and we um, were creating plays written by the young people or crafted by the young people. And this particular young person, we didn't know if they were going to be able to, if they were going to be able to perform. But because of the methodology, when those lights came up, they were able to transform themselves based on the images that they had created. And I got to watch that person go from being this very withdrawn young person to, you know, more than 10 years later, being, um, you know, a leader in their field. They're, uh, they're in, uh, in the field of fashion design. And so to watch okay. that happen, it wasn't necessarily about being an actor, but it was about giving voice to, you know, finding a way to express oneself using these theatrical tools. And I've seen, I've never seen anyone not be able to perform 
their own story when using these tools that don't force them to sit down with a pencil and a piece of paper and write it and grammatical and this and how do you spell this and all those things but by allowing people to um, you know show me make make show me the, what the face looks like show me where the hands are uh, what do they say what's the t what, is, what does it sound like what does it remind you of by ask, be able, being able to ask questions and use those to get people engaged in the, in the storytelling process and we can do that collectively right we can have a room full of people all throwing in their ideas and moving around just like in you know in, in your typical sport you know, you don't you don't rehearse a you don't rehearse the baseball game. You don't rehearse a basketball game or a football game, right? Theater can be that way. Theater can be played more like a like a sport. In fact, uh, Augusto Boal calls it a martial art, which yeah. you also can't really rehearse. You can practice, you know, certain moves, but there's there's a philosophy to it that you come to understand. And by teaching people the philosophy of the theater as a tool for self-expression and as a tool for revolution, then they can begin to engage in it more quickly and more effectively in terms of um, achieving their own liberation. It's interesting because, you know, what's coming to me as you're speaking is, you know, anti-oppression work is not only about advocacy and raising awareness, but it's also about healing and healing communities, and that's tied to a very a spiritual nature. And in your bio, you also mentioned that uh, you practice ancient shamanism um, and you pull from different traditions such as African trickster and, and Brazilian joker. I'm so... Uh, fascinated by all of that, and I'm just really curious as to how, you know, you've, you entered that spiritual path and how it has informed your work, mm -hmm. and even beyond your work, you know. Thank you. Thank you so much for bringing that in. Well, the first, um, the first piece of that um, is really built into the practice of theater of the oppressed, and that's the joker. That is the person whose role it is in that process of agitating the audience, of really getting them to feel that sense of outrage so that they can have a moment of communal healing. Because if we don't recognize that the oppression is there collectively, then we're not, we're not necessarily going to want to make that transition. But the joker... And it's, it's, it's almost a mystical practice because I don't know if you can really teach it. Um, it's that thing that I was, had, had been able to do as a child and that was somehow ignite in people, inspire people to play the game. Only in this case, the game is the game of anti-oppression, looking at mm -hmm. a moment that we all recognize and that we all want to transform and then being willing to get up out of our seats and go up there on the stage and try our hand at that transformation. So that's really the, jo the joker. And it's tied to the fool and the jester and all those things, right? Because a lot of the time I have to, you know, I have to play a kind of ignorance so that the audience is like, no, let me show you. No, that's not it. Let me show you. Right? You know, so that's, and I do that. It, it, that's built into the, the teaching of theater of the oppressed. It's because it's sort of like a co-learning space. 
because uh, a lot of times it's it's getting the the participants to feel like they're giving the lesson, and they are because they're teaching about their own experience, and that is the one place in our own lives where we all get to be the expert. So that's where the that's where the joking part comes in. The the more the more traditional spiritual roles came about in a I don't want to say a more roundabout way, but once that once that anti-oppression, once that um, space was opened up for me, I was suddenly um, exposed to, you know, that revolutionary spirit was, was, was unleashed. I was then exposed to counter-revolutionary practices and counter-revolutionary forces. And for me, that exacerbated a lot of childhood that I had been carrying with me from childhood, which I didn't talk a lot about. But, you know, that, that, that kid who was really, really good at getting everybody to play was leading a very um, challenged day-to-day existence in the home. Um, you know, there was a lot of addiction. There was a lot of violence in my house. And so a lot as I was becoming more and more engaged politically and in, in the world of social justice, I was seeing um, these compulsive behaviors erupting that while I was on a path of like, you know, save the world on one side, I was on a self-destructive path on another. And so I discovered the world of recovery. And it was really in the world of recovery, both, you know, you know, the traditional sort of like therapy, psychiatry, recovery, and, um, and, you know, 12 step recovery group, you know, um, uh, 12 step recovery in various, various um, um, fellowships. And because those programs, although they are not uh, tied to any particular re- religious belief, they are spiritual programs. And it was through that work that I had the spiritual awakening. And that was a whole other, that was a whole other thing. That was something that I never expected. Um, although when I think back on my childhood, the, um, the seeds of it were there. Um, the way particular gifts manifested themselves um, in me as a child, um, my intuitive way of knowing what my mother was going to say next, especially if she was going to announce that someone had died or that someone had, mm. that someone had been born. I was very good at just blurting it out before she would say it. And uh, so when I started having um, that spiritual awakening, I got a very strong message telling me to look into shamanism. And looking into shamanism and looking at the prerequisites for becoming a shaman, it was my life. I had organically um, been walking a shaman's path. And um, it turned out suddenly that all of these other folks, including my sponsor in my first program, 
was also a shaman, had never shared that information with me. So not only had I been walking a shaman's path, I'd been walking that shaman, shamanistic path with a shaman teacher. And then I started um, getting messages from animals, seeing them, um, having encounters with animals, and discovered that by paying attention to what was happening around me in the natural world, uh, I could discover answers to things that used to baffle me. And not only could I discover answers to things that would baffle me, I would intuit animal energies around other people. And so I was able to bring that kind of healing to others. And it was through the study of shamanism that I realized theater of the oppressed is a shamanistic practice. Mm. The recreation of these oppressive situations and these traumatic moments are one of the tools that are used in shamanism to dispel um, what we would call like the evil spirit, right? That's holding on to the person or the state that that person is in, that the person has been hypnotized to believe that they are in perpetually from the moment the trauma occurs to rupture it, to go back in time and repair it and then break free of it. And um, from discovering this um, connection to my roots in shamanism and pursuing this Animal mediumship, I call it animal mediumship because they're just, they're the spirits of animals that are just showing up. And it's like gotten really out of control to the point where a raccoon fell through my ceiling into my bedroom one night. The night that I'd said, I need a sign. If you really want me to go this day, I want a sign. And that night, I have these marine vinyl panels in, in one room of my house, the room where I sleep in the winter because it's the warmest room in the house. And I'd ask for a sign. I, I said, I want to know. I want a sign tonight. And I thought it was going to come to me in a dream. <laughs> uh -huh. An actual raccoon fell through one of these panels into my bedroom, woke me up, landed on top of my computer, all the computer lights came on, so when I woke up, it was there, perfectly lit, climbed up the curtains and climbed out, and when I went up into the attic to see what had happened, it was gone, no sign of it. So, um, so clearly, um, the, the, the ancestors, the spirits, the helping spirits wanted me to pursue this you know, animal mediumship, and a friend had randomly sent me a link to a deck of cards that were animal oracle cards, even though I don't know why, you know, every now and then I couldn't see an animal for someone and, and they thought it would be helpful for me to be able to pull a card with it, this animal image. But what showed up instead was a tarot deck. Hmm. And when I held the tarot deck in my hand, it was just vibrating. It was pulsing with an energy. I was in love. I felt the same feeling that I feel when I am hopelessly in love with a person around this deck of cards. And three days later, I had been approved as a reader in a group of tarot readers because my readings were just accurate. And I had never studied tarot. So even the meanings of the cards were just being, I was intuiting the meanings of the cards. 
And so it was very clear that this was a path that I was supposed to pursue and uh, started collecting decks. And along that route, I, I, I found a deck that was a hoodoo deck. And what li I liked about it is that it was, you know, I had black people on it. I was just excited mm -hmm. to have it has some black faces on it. And um, so this hoodoo deck shows up, and it had a book attached to it that talked about the history of hoodoo. And immediately, again, it was like when the tarot deck showed up, and I was like, this is, I'm supposed to pursue this. And I went on to Ancestry.com and ordered a DNA test. How that connected to hoodooism, I don't know. But um, I never knew my family history. And I knew who my grandmother was on my father's side, and I knew who my grandmother was on my mother's side, and that there were other people, but not who they were. And after ordering that DNA test, before the DNA test even arrived, I discovered 600 ancestors. And in a wow. month, I had discovered 2,000 ancestors. So I say the ancestors came and kicked down my door. <laughs> and things have not been the same since then. Um, I've been intuiting um, the use of herbs for people in, a, in the magical sense, in the root working sense. Um, so all of these traditions, I've, I've looked into um, Ifa and other African-rooted um, spiritual traditions, each time, um, another aspect of my, you know, life has opened up, and I've been able to connect to other people, and my ability to heal, in, 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 in a way that doesn't feel to me foreign than what I had been doing as a theater of the oppressed practitioner, but it's now rooted in something that I understand goes much further than this, this theater practice that was developed by this individual in Brazil in the 1970s. You know, what's interesting, Rich, is like we have been, Kizzy and I, we, we've talked to a lot of people, and how many people who we have talked to who at some point this level of spirituality, getting in touch with, you know, has, has done, and it seems like when they stop resisting or open up to and start to let it in, that it really expands not only how they see their artwork, they see their community work, they see what they're doing, but then their interactions with others. Did you find that happen also? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the fact that we're speaking, right, the whole, the whole uh -huh. and that, you know, I've been, uh, the, 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 the reading that I've been doing, the books that have been introduced to me, all by people, a lot of people who are new in my life, people who've been in my life for a long time who, who say to me, I never told you this, but I had a similar situation. So people are opening up about, so now this idea, this level of spirituality, and I say magic, is, has just mm -hmm. become a routine part of my life because suddenly I'm in a community of individuals who are having similar experiences. And not just that there are stories, like this weird thing happened, are um, manifesting things in their own lives and 
I think the thing for me that is the most powerful is the way that I get to get on uh, the line with someone because a lot of this has been happening during this um, social distancing. Uh-huh. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why I'm, you know, sort of flying high in this period is that I'm closer to people than I've ever been because I'm spiritually connected to them. So a str- I can get on the line with a perfect stranger and within five seconds of the conversation, they're having an emotional breakthrough just being on the line. And I know that that's because the ancestors are channeling something through me that this person needed and I don't need to know what it was or what it is specifically. I, keep, I tell people, I'm just the telephone. And uh-huh. they've made the call and the ancestors answered, and whatever the ancestors had to say seems to have worked, and I don't question that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, no, I mean, you know, it just seems like afterwards, like, Kizzy and I will say, you know what, they were singing our jam, you know, it's like, they know exactly <laughs> what we're talking, you know. Yeah. But there is that, like you said, I mean, in this period of time, because I think that part of what we wanted to look at was not just go like, oh, woe is us, you know, social distance, but what's happening? And it seems like there is this convergence that seems mm-hmm. to be happening. Absolutely. Well, oh, absolutely. And, and that's one of the, again, one of the things, so I don't feel... Um, I don't feel alienated by this. I feel perfectly comfortable. I've been blogging about this stuff every day, the same way some people blog about what they had for breakfast that morning, because I understand that there are a lot of people out there and that um, we need to be connecting because there's something, clearly there's something we're supposed to do. (laughs) I don't think it's an accident that we are all, um, that a lot of people are suddenly waking up um, and that these lights are coming on and that these abilities are manifesting. I mean, and the world really needs it, right? And I think the belief in this, it's going to take more than just the solutions that, and I'm going to say men can come up with. It's going to take more than the solutions that some men can come up with. In fact, the solutions that men have come up with have gotten us into this situation. And I don't think that it's about convincing these men, and by men, you know, the people who tend to, you know, run things. I'm, yeah. uh, I don't need to name any names. I don't need to give them any more, lar- any larger <laughs> than they already have. But we don't, I don't think it's about us um, uh, trying to convince them to do the right thing anymore. And I don't think it's about um, fighting on that playing field. I think it's about creating a whole, like, leap forward, like an, an, uh, an evolutionary leap forward in the world, in humanity. And I think that that's going to take a lot of spiritual energy, a lot of tuning in and accessing things that are we're probably programmed into our DNA from the beginning that we just haven't accessed in a really long time. So we've been uh, using words such as shamanism, and you've also mentioned, Reg, uh, hoodoo. Can you 
just briefly explain, just in light of the listeners who may not know, um, if you can explain what shamanism and hoodoo is for our listeners. Shamanism is probably the oldest spiritual practice in the world. It was practiced all over the world. Um, and it's a, a practice that really is rooted in nature, an understanding of nature, an understanding of uh, the world that is seen and the world that is unseen. So understanding energies, feelings, intuitions, and all of those things, a kind of reverence, a practice of reverence around that belief that we are all interconnected in this web of life and discovering what our role is in that web and the way that we can play with the strands of that web to manifest change. So that's shamanism as I understand it. And in truth, um, I think we're, we're all, um, you know, we're all shaman because we all have the ability to access these things or at least that's my fundamental belief, and that's what I say. It's been programmed into our DNA because it's been practiced for so long. It was how people made sense of the world, but not only made sense of it, were able to live in it on a day-to-day basis. And then hoodoo is, hoodoo takes um, knowledge from Africa, spiritual traditions from, from Africa, which were much more closely linked to magic than, say, Western religion. Western religion, you know, it's like the theater. You sit down and you sit down Mm -hmm. and listen, and, you know, whatever happens is, you know, what happens. And, you know, African traditions, there was a belief that we were really communicating. Each of us um, had a responsibility to communicate with, um, you know, the, the various um, spirits, levels of spirituality. There were the, you know, the ancestors, and then there were the, you know, the the, the lesser deities, or you know, um, um, Olurumare, who is the, you know, supreme, supreme being. I think that's a thing that a lot of people don't understand is that in a lot of African spiritual beliefs, there is, you know, it is monotheistic in that there is the supreme being who is um, who is gender nonconforming, by the way. So um, it takes some of that spiritual tradition. Um, filtered through the experience of Africans who were brought, you know, who were kidnapped and brought here and stripped of all but what they could maintain um, through storytelling and through the natural environment. And so since, you know, if you were down south in a, you know, Protestant culture, you didn't have, um, you, you weren't able to practice your, your spiritual tradition. You were not able to, you know, really worship in any kind of open way, um, you know, the, the, the gods, the deities, the spirits. But you could, um, you could do root work. You could pull up roots. Uh-huh. You can interact with, with the, the, the natural elements. And interestingly, it, was, it became linked to... Um, you know, Native American traditions as well, and was also very much influenced by Judeo-Christianity because um, it was typical in the African experience that if you were captured 
you, you know, you, you, you picked up some of what you, whoever captured you, they must have some really powerful spirits working for them. So you picked up and you learned how to co-op that and use that for yourself. So the Bible became a part of that because they understood that, okay, that was what they, that's what they used and they got us here captive right now. Let me see if I can use it to get free. And so hoodoo came, was, was what was developed in that space where you had to do it, you had to practice in secret. Um, you couldn't necessarily work, worship in any formal way, but you could practice um, certain aspects of this, you know, magic, the magic that was tied to convening with the spirits through the use of herbs, stones, water, prayers, and... Um, so that's what that was what was left over who you know became known as hoodoo it's a very different tradition than say voodoo or santeria or lacume or uh, uh, uh cadomble these other um uh spiritual traditions that were able to link themselves to um christian practices uh, um uh, uh practices um like catholic um, catholicism because catholicism had idols and so mm -hmm. you you could, you could worship the saints. You could do so. They could layer um, all of those traditions have layered their beliefs onto Catholicism. Uh, uh, but in in the South, where it was mostly Protestant, you didn't have those. You didn't have idols, so you had to do it all with that book, that one book that you had to hold on to, and what you could do, you know, basically with the dirt. So that's how hoodoo, in a nutshell, you know, it was years, you know. It was 400 years in the development, but in a nutshell, that's how hoodoo, how hoodoo developed and what hoodoo is, and also known as root work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I, I, I believe, too, that sometimes you end up being where you're supposed to be. And when I talked to, um, no relation, Adrian Marie Brown, we were talking, and we talked about Detroit Summer, which brought her to Detroit and to the Bog Center and her time with Grace and getting involved. And she said that that changed the trajectory of her life and her work. Did you, do you feel the same way, that there was something that happened when you landed here in Detroit? Definitely. Oh, def most definitely. Um, being in this house, being connected to the earth, the way that I am here, um, I would have never, I would never develop this type of uh, spiritual relation to the planet. Living in 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 Brooklyn, you know, where my experience was concrete, I'd seen some animals. I have to say, animals have been coming to visit me for a while now, but. Um, you know they were they were rodents. I considered them uh -huh. rodents. But here, when I see animals, they're in the natural environment, and I understand them as a sign that nature is coming back to take its rightful place as part of the cycle of life, part of the web of our of our everyday lives. So that was one big thing. And then, of course, there's the revolutionary spirit that just is woven through Detroit. A history mm -hmm. of that that you know rebellious revolutionary spirit of of change and resistance. 
I always ask people who have been at the Bob Center and knew great, did you see the chair? Did you have that moment when she said, yeah, I remember when we were talking with Malcolm and he sat right in that chair. Did you have that moment with her? <laughs> I had a similar moment because when I was talking to Grace, I, you know, I I'd already I'd purchased this house and I knew from the beginning that the house was going to be some kind of hub for transformation. I didn't realize it would be my own mm-hmm. or include my own. But um, I, was, I was talking to, to her, and she, and she said, we need a bed and breakfast. <laughs> so <laughs> almost the opposite. I was like, what? You want me to, like, what? Everybody else gets to, like, you give everybody else these, you know, um, Franz Fanon, and you give, you know, <laughs> you give them these, these, like, you know, uh, you give them theory, and you're telling me you need me to be the ho- to run the hotel? Okay. <laughs> of course, I had no interest in doing anything like that um, at the time, but the space in many ways has become a, a rest space, a, a, um, a retreat space for people, and it is a kind of, you know, under-the-radar bed and breakfast of sorts, um, for, including for the animals. I have so many starlings around the house right now who just, they decided this was where they were going to reproduce and and come of age. So um, that was more my, my moment with Grace, um, sitting mm-hmm. in the chair. And I was really, I, was, I, was, I, I have to say, um, having watched videos um, and seeing all of the other people who did sit in that same chair that mm-hmm. I was sitting in when I spoke to her, I was really honored to have had that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Rich, we're going to take our second break and then we're going to come and talk about your current and upcoming work so we'll be right back collections by michelle brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And today, Kizzy and I are talking with Reg Flowers. Yeah, I, uh, that house on field has, I think, also a lot of magic and a lot of energy to it. It's sort of like you feel that, that revolutionary, you feel that activism, it's there, it will always be there on that corner. And knowing the things that have, have happened from that. So you didn't open the bed and breakfast officially. <laughs> um, but you did put down roots and you, you've got a home and they're here in Detroit. 
I know that you are working on your first full-length work of nonfiction. Can you tell us about your book? Absolutely. Um, in fact, the book is now complete, and it's called Crazy Queer Black Radical Atheist Guide to Recovery. <laughs> and I love that. Yeah, thank you. Um, it charts um, really my two-year journey through the world of 12-step programs and mental health. And um, I, it's so interesting because I, I, I wrote, as I was writing the introduction, I said, this isn't going to be a tell-all. I just want you to know this isn't going to be a tell-all. And then it ends up being like this very much kind of a tell-all, but it's a spiritual tell-all because so many of the things that, that happened were just magical and transformative. But I felt like I had to um, be pretty explicit about the, the dark aspects of the journey for the lighter aspects of the journey to really, um, to really have the impact. And my hope is that it becomes a book particularly for young people, queer people, people of color who have a wariness around the world of mental health, who maybe haven't heard a story um, to the level of depth that, um, that I try to achieve in this story. And it's also from the perspective of, you know, someone in the world of social justice. So, you know, for me, the whole world needs recovery. Um, and I want to save the whole world. And to be able to do any work at all, um, my own um, spiritual well-being and mental well-being had to take precedence. And so it covers the two years that I... I don't, I don't want to say I took a break because I didn't really take a break, but I took some time to incorporate um, recovery and wellness practices into my own life. You know, I think that for many and communities of color uh, and the LGBTQ plus community, you know, there's a, there still remains that sort of stigma about self-care, mental health care, um, finding that recovery programs don't quite fit in with what we're doing, you know, with, with where we're at. It's not seen through the lens of our community. Is that, was that part of your point in writing the book is to sort of say, hey, you know, these are the ups, these are the downs, but this is what it can do to, to help? Yes. I mean, one of, like, one of the first... Um, my first reason I was, was resist my first reason for wanting to write the book was resistance because they were in there talking about all this God stuff and it was a very narrow view. It was a very, you know, white middle class nineteen fifties view of what a healthy life was. And my life is never gonna be that. Ever. <laughs> and uh -huh. uh, I don't think most people would want their life to be uh what was considered normal in the nineteen fifties. And that's again one of the reasons why we're probably in the trouble that we're in right now is that people were trying to aspire to a level of, you know, normalcy that was not possible um, and lived and to live sustainably. And so uh, I wrote this as a way to, I thought I was going to kind of rewrite a self, uh, a self-help book that was going to use language that would be more queer friendly, more inclusive, more diverse. 
and all of those things ended up being true, but it took me just, instead of trying to be an academic about it and come up with, you know, another textbook on recovery, I had to just tell my own story and hope that that would suffice in um, bringing a lot of other people to the, ta- to the conversation about mental health. Mm-hmm. And um, so, that's, so that's, that I'm looking forward to right now, looking for, I mean, sort of, I'm, hunting, I'm in that weird stage where um, thinking about how to, how to take it into publishing now that it's done, it's been through a developmental edit- editing process. I can go the you know agent, find the biggest publisher possible route. I could you know go with a more independent press just to get it into the hands of people more quickly. So I've really been trying to tap into the spirits, the ancestors, to find answers to that. Um, I really, I just want people to get it in their hands because I think it's going to help a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. In the meantime, I've been, you know, blogging every day. I've dis- discovered an alter ego for myself, Notorious Pink, which is actually my shaman name. Um, uh, and Notorious, so I've been, you know, blogging every day. Just my sort of sort of revolutionary musings um, from a very different perspective on what's happening in the world today, and trying to bring some historical perspective. And I'm writing in a in a in a vernacular that's very urban. And hopefully makes people, um, you know, makes people feel real comfortable. Make people feel like it's for them instead of being for them. Um, <laughs> you know, so so that I'm, I'm doing that every day. I'm trying to write at least a thousand words uh, a day and posting those. And it's developing a little bit of a following. Suddenly, my 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 Facebook page is blown up to a ridiculous number of people following uh, that I never would have expected. Uh, and then uh, also, I'm uh, developing a new play. Uh, with uh, Falcon Works Theater Company called The Program. And it's going to take the framework of the recovery that I've been a part of, and I'm going to be applying it to white supremacy, looking at white supremacy as a form of addiction. Mm-hmm. That goes into rehearsal at the end of this month and will premiere, and it's going to be um, de- developed to um, be presented uh, via, um, you know, remote, remotely v- video, um, one of the, one of the um, standard video platforms, because that's how a lot of recovery programs are operating these days. And so the goal is to have the audience feel as though they're just attendees in this meeting because, you know, my, my theory is that we all have a little white supremacy that we can recover from. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that in these days, you know, because we're talking a lot about, you know, about racism and like how you were saying, like there are parts that we are part of white supremacy that we participate in or what we have been ingrained in us just because of the country we live in. Mm-hmm. We all speak English. Exactly. We, we, you we've, know. All been, we've all been to some extent assimilated into a Western culture that were it not for a set of very violent uh, happenings 
events we would not have been a part of. So our, our becoming the, the, the individuals that we are today is in large part due to a 400-year campaign of violence on uh, black and indigenous bodies. And so, so the idea, and this goes back to what we were saying earlier, that it's not necessarily going to be about you know, somebody's plan for how to to overcome it, but uh, it's going to require some kind of a spiritual solution, um, some kind of a spiritual solution, spiritual healing, and I think um, the the reason for this for this play, and I think of all of my work in this way, is it becomes a ritual for that, that the audience is invited to participate in, so um, they will they will leave having been through that um, that healing ceremony. How do you envision this in this age of, you know, we're doing Zooms and Zoom performances? And this is going to be very different than what you've been doing at Falcon Works. How, mm-hmm. how did you wrap your head around how am I going to present this and make it interactive? But it's a different, it's a different platform. It's a different stage than you're used to working at. How, yeah. did you, how do you envision it in these days of, of COVID-19? Yeah, well, um, you know, because I go to recovery meetings, I still go to recovery meetings. It's, you know, just part of the maintenance of, of, of recovery. And it's, you know, you're never recovered or they, you know, that's the, 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 the idea is that you're not recovered, you're in recovery. And so, and it's one day at a time. And so by using the same framework that uh, those recovery meetings where you, you show up, um, we'll have small audiences so that it emulates the number of people that would be on a typical recovery call. And the audience will be walked through that process. There's, you know, usually when you go to a recovery meeting, there's a preamble where they talk about the fellowship and why the fellowship exists. The, the, the structure of sharing, there's, there are, you know, recommendations for sharing. There are things about crosstalk. And so everybody kind of gets the rules for how to share effectively in a recovery meeting and then you have you know these actors and I don't know if the audience will know exactly who the actors are and who are audience members because there's also a process for bringing in newcomers who've never participated in a meeting before and so by having the actors share their particular stories which will be very closely related to their own personal stories and then create space for the audience to also share so that there hopefully would be this seamless transition from actors to audience and then maybe another actor might share later and and these shares are three minutes so the hope is that we'll have people who've come to attend having the opportunity to, you know, share their real stories uh, about their own internalized or otherwise um, racism, white supremacy. So, um, and that's not very different than what we have done in the past, except it's a very, the platform is different, but uh, we have always with the company over, at least over the past, um, the years that we've been doing a main stage production, um, uh, w- which has been since 
since um, we produced an original piece around the around Hurricane Sandy and the recovery efforts around Hurricane Sandy, that was our first really interactive piece. And so um, we've gotten really good at um, getting the audience involved. It's part of the, the practice of the theater of the oppressed, and that's what really makes our work unique. Is that we we want the audience to feel like they're not just not only are they they're attending and being encouraged, but they are from the moment they sit down in their seats, characters in the play, just by nature of being there. Mm. Has there been any talks around, you know, navigating screenings or audition in light of, you know, this pandemic? Well, what's interesting is we we were auditioning right around the time social distancing was becoming a thing. And mm -hmm. so we ended up, uh, it ended up that most of the uh, actors, all of the, I knew, I knew several of the actors. I had, I had seen their work before and some of them I'd worked with in the past, uh, but all of them ended up submitting audition tapes and the audition tape asked them to talk about their experience with their own internalized racism. So to, to, to be in the play, you had to fess up. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not like uh, they're going to be required to, you know, to share their personal details, but the characters that will be developed around them will be based on um, similar stories to their own. Uh, and then, you know, because the presentation will be, uh, it'll be designed to be presented using one of these platforms, Zoom, very likely Zoom, uh, the, I believe the um, experience of the audience will be very different than, say, um, attending a reading or attending a play where we're supposed to believe something else is happening other than what is actually happening. What is the way the play is being presented is the way the play is intended to be presented. These people are at home, they're sitting in their various rooms where they sit down to attend recovery meetings and they're talking about their lives in the way they would talk about them if they were on any other um, video recovery meeting or phone recovery meeting. So what else is coming up next for you? Well, <laughs> those are some pretty big pieces. The other pieces that I'm continuing to, um, I actually next week will be doing, uh, I have a peacemaking case that will start next Tuesday. Um, that, is, that is actually centered around a hate crime. So, and that'll be the first time that um, something particularly, something that was particular to um, race and, um, you know, was the theme for a case. And I, so I'm kind of honored that I'm being brought in for the case. I can't think of a, you know, a more challenging time to be having a conversation about race where the person's, um, you know, the person's welfare is on the line. They're their sanction is going to be decided based on the outcomes of this particular case. So, um, so that's pretty powerful. 
also I'm continuing, you know, as a speaker. Well, the, the Altspace Detroit project, which is a, uh, you know, a sponsored project of the Allied Media, Media Projects, uh, continues, but it's, it's, it's really on an, a hiatus because it, it exists as a physical space. So it's been really challenging. So uh, we're going to uh, start an installation of a studio that we don't know when we'll actually be able to use the studio. So that's been, um, that's a little bit of a challenge. And then um, lastly, there's the work um, with the Speakers Bureau, and I continue to be asked to do work remotely as a speaker. And um, that's another way that people can, that's probably the best way for people to contact me really is through the Allied Media Speakers Bureau. Mm. Sounds like, you know, a lot of amazing things in store. And I'm, we're all looking forward to, you know, hearing more about it. How can we, you know, uh, follow up with your work and update the, on social media, your website? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I, I guess one way to, to catch me is on um, Facebook. Um, really, the Allied Media, Allied Media is the best way because you can engage me through the Allied Media Project for work if someone wants to invite me to speak or call on me, and that's um, through alliedmedia.org slash speakers bureau slash Reg Flowers. And then um, I have my own website, which is regflowers.com, and that's a way for people to get in touch with me. And um, falconworkstheater.org is my theater company website. And I think through those various channels, um, you can find me. I have one last question. Okay, the blog. What's the blog. behind the name Notorious Pink? Oh, yeah, that's right. And Notorious Pink, you can, you can get me to NotoriousPink.org. I forgot. That's the, that's the main one. That's, the, that's, where, that's where the magic happens. So Notorious Pink, it's really interesting because I started seeing myself in pink as I was going through, like, especially as I was exploring um, shamanism and started doing the practices because, you know, um, this isn't just reading. I get out there in the in the woods and you know and call on the directions. I started seeing myself in this pink suit, and for some reason, the pink suit spoke to me of defying gender because it's pink, which has its own kind of um, gender connotations, although historically those that has shifted over time but then it's also a suit that has another kind of gender connotation and then um the notorious part was like i i really wanted to ground myself in urban culture hip-hop culture like things that would make people feel <laughs> you know i wanted it to be unapologetically black i wanted it to be unapologetically queer and i don't think there's any name that sounds more like you know <laughs> Black and queer as notorious pink. That is like to me <laughs> a collision of of both those worlds. And I, you know, and I try to. I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually, um, I wrote some bars for a a song about Joe Biden. That's that's gonna. I don't know what what's happening with that, so I don't want to give out too much information. But I wrote, uh, I wrote, um, I wrote, so I wrote some bars for it. So I'm going to be rapping uh, mm -hmm. on it. So I'll actually be notorious pink, the rapper. 
um, soon enough. But NotoriousPink.org is where people can connect to me if they want to um, get into the tarot work, the root work. That's where I've been really launching that stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I was looking at it. And, first, and, you know, and, that, and I'll tell you, that's what I thought of. You know, it's like you and, like, the player player suit and hot pink mm-hmm. and, uh, doing, doing tarot, you know, and, and that just made me sort of smile. Yeah. Well, Reg, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with Kizzy and I today. It's been yeah. amazing. I'm surprised we haven't crossed paths before here in Detroit. But now that I know, we will. Awesome. Okay. Thank you both, too. It's wonderful to meet you and to spend this beautiful time with you both. And very excited and looking forward to uh, hearing more from you and following the, following the, the cast as well. Yes, this is such a lovely, wonderful conversation. And again, you know, so glad that we've all crossed paths. Thank you, Kizzy. Okay, and and I'll let you throw in your vote. Kizzy and I have a regular thing going. Brooklyn or Detroit? Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you this. My favorite parts of Brooklyn are like Detroit, mm-hmm. are really like Detroit, are the parts of it that emulate the spirit that's here. And so, oh, that's going to, I'm going to break a lot of hearts, but, you know, this is where I, if, you know, this is where I'm going to, this is where I'm going to retire. We want to thank our guest, the notorious pink, Reg Flowers. They are an artist, activist, and educator whose work is rooted in ancient shamanic African trickster and Brazilian joker tradition, and who uses theater of the oppressed out of hosting Navajo peacemaking and other anti-oppression techniques as the foundation of their theater making, mediation, problem solving, and group healing practices. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic for a future show. You can support the podcast by becoming a sponsor of Collections by Michelle Brown on Patreon.com. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when we'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.